Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the voice of the American counter-revolution and freedom in this still great nation. I'm your host coming at you live from the guerrilla camp located deep in the heart of rural North Carolina. And today I have a bombshell of an interview. I have I, I am honored by having a very special guest on right now. The father of the survivalist movement in America and the the editor in chief, the owner of Survival Blog, the author of Patriots, a novel that has probably got more people into survivalism and preparedness than any other book that I can think of. Mr. James Wesley Rawls, how are you doing, sir? Just fine. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, hey, the the honor certainly is all mine. And, you know, looking at the just at a glance at the news stories that are out there, kind of the the whole global picture. There's a lot of people that are talking about civil war and insurrection and uh, a lot of large scale mass dissatisfaction with you know, the status quo. And, and I think that they're absolutely justified in all that. And that's, you know, one of the, the big things that we talk about here on this podcast. Now, over the years, you, you have been one of the most consistent voices in the preparedness movement for all of these years and, and really one of the oldest and most influential voices as well. You know, a lot of people are seeing the big picture and they're seeing that, you know, we're, we're on a bad path. that's not leading anywhere good. And more and more people every day are waking up to this reality. So I get a lot of questions on my end. And I know you do, too, about where to begin in personal preparedness, where to begin in getting all of this stuff squared away. And in your, you know, Many decades of doing this now and, and you know, your your wisdom, where would you tell those people who are just getting into it now where to get started? Well, I guess uh, to start as a Christian, I've got to emphasize get right with God first. And we can't expect God's covenant blessings unless we're in covenant with God. So accept Christ as your savior and press on. In terms of physical preparedness, I think water filtration has got to be at the very top of the list because you can improvise a lot of things. But uh, my many years in the field taught me you can you can Im improvise a lot, but you can't improvise water. Uh, you've got to find an actual source of water, purify it uh, and transport it 
and have it available for drinking, cooking, washing. So get your water source identified, figure out how you're going to transport that water, and then how you're going to treat that water. You don't have to take it all the way to a boil, just short of a boil. Um, and then, of course, you could also treat water with chlorine, just plain hypochlorite leach. You don't want any um, leach with added super whiteners or whatever. You just want plain hypochlorite, hypochlorite leach. And, uh, of course, water filtration is important as well. If you're drawing water from an open source that's cloudy at all, you want to run it through a pre-filter. Just a couple of thicknesses of a T-shirt will do for that as a pre-filter. But then get a good quality water filter. Really, two is what you need. A large one for at home, like a big Berkey, and then a compact one like a, a Katahdin filter. Uh, that's spelled K-A-T-A-D-Y-N. Uh, some people say catadine. I think it's actually pronounced Katahdin, like Mount Katahdin. Uh, you want a compact filter as well, so you have a portable filter for when you're in the field. Right on. Yeah, water Water is one of those things that I know you've seen it, and me being overseas in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, I didn't really understand dysentery until I experienced it oh, and it 100% of the time it comes from unclean water sources and so you know that that really is should be top of the list right there um, you know it, it, it exactly as you point out now moving on from hydration because we know that that hydration the lack thereof can kill you in you know 36 hours in my experience generally dehydration within 18 hours becomes detrimental um and and can absolutely kill you but coming from from there what's the next step well obviously um food storage would be next down the list and it's been covered ad infinitum in my blog. Again, my blog is survivalblog.com. We have some really deep archives. There's a lot there on food storage. I suggest that people dig in there and figure out first and foremost what foods you use on a regular basis that store well and concentrate on storing those first because that's what your, what your system is, is used to uh, in terms of, you know, what your body likes is accustomed to and uh, will keep you regular and psychologically having the foods that you're accustomed to will help pull you through times of great stress and anyone who's been through a stressful situation will let you know that things like comfort foods are, are called that for a reason so Figure out what foods you use on a regular basis, stock up on them in depth. Uh, it's as simple as just doubling up on what you buy uh, on a regular basis on trips to the grocery store and then finding sources for those foods in larger quantities so you're eating cheap. And then, of course, storing those foods in vermin-proof containers. My favorite is the five-gallon or the seven-gallon uh, food-grade HDPE bucket. Make sure they're food grade. They'll be marked uh, 
NSF on the bottom, which stands for National Science Foundation or food grade. You don't want to be uh, getting buckets that are essentially paint buckets that uh, are contaminated by mold release compounds in the in the molding process. So don't buy orange buckets from Home Depot. Those are not food grade necessarily. Get make sure you're buying food grade buckets. And then again, at my blog, I've described several different methods of making sure that what you put into those buckets is still going to be wholesome to eat when you open your buckets. You don't want to open your bucket five years down the, the line and have a face full of moths in your face and then see a bucket that's full of full of uh, some really nasty looking critters. So yeah. um, there, there's a number of methods you can use. One is with dry ice. You can also buy a commercial off the shelf oxygen absorber packets and then to keep oxygen transfer to a minimum it's important to use a mylar liner in your bucket because hdpe buckets actually leak uh, oxygen over uh, an extended period of time and you can end up with food that has a really rapidly declining nutritive value if you don't use a liner in your buckets right yeah, that, that's been my experience as well. And and the oxidization of beans can make them go rancid. I know uh, for me and, and a lot of other people out there, when you're, you're first getting into food storage, a lot of people are going to pick up the most inexpensive items because freeze-dried foods, uh, while they are, are great because it is a comprehensive meal uh, right then and there, they, they – a lot of people are daunted by the expense of them right off yeah. the bat. And so yeah. they're, they're going to get, I'll go ahead. And, and the cost per calorie is much, much higher than just buying bulk staple foods like wheat, rice, beans, especially for people like you who live in a Southern climate, humidity is the, another big issue. Yep. And um, now there's some foods that you, you don't want to over dry like beans, for example, if they if beans get too dry, they harden and you can soak them for days and they'll never soften up. The only way you can cook really hard beans that have been stored for years is with a pressure cooker. So um, but most other foods, you want to keep the moisture content fairly low, keep them well sealed and again, away from vermin. You got to have containers that will at least deter mice and preferably deter rats. Right. And they're going to get in there. I mean, you, you're going to have pests that are going to get in there and they're going to ruin your food storage. And, you know, you that's that's why the necessity of proper storage in there. Now, we've covered water. We've covered food. What's the next step? Well, boy, it, that's a tough call because there's so many different ways you can go. Uh, night vision equipment, communications equipment. Uh, medical gear, those have got to be fairly near the top of, the, of your list. They're all important. They shouldn't be overlooked. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just think strictly in terms of guns and ammo. But beyond guns yes. and ammo, you need to have, you have to have a, a way to carry your fighting load, at least an old-fashioned LC-1 harness, but preferably a, a modern plate carrier, uh, some taco pouches and 
uh, a hydration pack is the way I, I'm running right now. Um, but think in terms of turning yourself into a weapon system. It's the man, it's the rifle, it's the optic, it's the preferably night vision, uh, a, a good set of high quality magazines, something to carry those magazines and body armor. You're not a weapon. You are not a weapon system unless you have all that squared away. And if if you're someone who's just a gun collector who calls himself a prepper and goes out and keeps buying gun after gun after gun and doesn't get the part away, along with cleaning equipment, by the way, um, then you're really combat ineffective. Couldn't agree more. Uh, seriously, and and that is a trend. I know that, that you've seen over the years that you've spoke to, I've seen it uh, on my end as a trainer, as a fellow writer, you know, and the guys who are the gun collectors and, you know, you, you say, OK, you, you've got seven serviceable fighting rifles here, but you don't have a year's worth of food or you don't have a, a big Berkey water filter or you don't have a. Uh, vehicle that is going to be serviceable long term or has any sort of hardening against EMP resistance um, or or the effects of an EMP. So th there's a lot of avenues there. And I I've seen it where guys will get really hung up on the firearm and the, the tactical side of things. And they don't really they don't really see the big picture. Now, in your opinion, and I know that this might have changed a little bit over the years because I've been following you for a really long, long time. In your opinion, what is the the most, I would say, um, ubiquitous firearm that a person who is just getting into preparedness, what should they be looking at purchasing? Well, for a primary weapon, I'm now a big believer in AR-10s. Fifteen years ago, if you'd asked me that, I would have said, you know, an M1A or an HK91 or perhaps even an L1A1 or a FAL. But nowadays, I think AR-10s are pretty much the uh, coin of the realm, as it were. Now yep. that, the, that some standardization has been developed, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, there were a couple of types of magazines that were duking it out for AR-10s, but now they pretty well settled on the LRSR pattern uh, PMAG as, the, as right. the predominant magazine for AR-10s. I like AR-10s because most people uh, either have military training or they've trained with people who have military training, and they're used to an AR platform. That puts... Uh, a lot of muscle, muscle memory in place. So uh, you can capitalize on that with an AR-10 because it's, it's simply a scaled up AR-15, um, although historically it was the other way around. Uh, right. The, right. the AR-10 is great because most people are used to having the selector switch right under their thumb, the bolt release uh, right where they expect it, their forward assist right where they expect it, and uh, you know, charging handle right where they expect it, and uh, AR-style sights. 
So I, I'm a big believer in AR-10s. Stack them deep. Yes, you should also probably have an AR-15, but I actually consider that more of a training weapon or perhaps a long-range patrol weapon uh, if you have to go extreme distances and, and still carry a fighting load. AR-10s, right. I think, are, are the, the way to go. And most of the brands that are on the market are quite reliable, quite dependable, quite accurate. And uh, in terms of optics mounting, I think the AR-10 is probably the, the best uh, 7.62 NATO ri rifle out there for optics mounting because most of the AR-10s made, unless it's a you know some kind of throwback rifle, uh, is is going to have a Picatinny rail on the top, and you get optics with good return to zero if you're um, taking an optic on and off of a, a Picatinny rail. And I think the AR-10 all around is the best choice for most folks these days. Uh, again, I've gone through several iterations. I started out with M1As, then I went to HKs, then I went to L1A1s, and then finally settled on AR-10s. I wish I'd done that a lot earlier. Although, again, as a weapon system, AR-10s really weren't mature until about five or six years ago with the advent of uh, affordable PMAGs. Yeah, I, I would agree completely with that. You know, the the uh, the adoption of the SR-25 that I knew of as the M110 uh, that, that was really coming about the the development of it. Of course, I, I carried an M24 uh, for uh, a lot of the time uh, when I was in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, but the couldn't agree more with that. And and the universe, the universal nature of the magazine is, is was really the game changer for the AR-10. Uh, because you know, you had a bunch of industry standards, as you pointed out. But but also on that note is the M1A. I have a couple of them. I love them. But optics, they, they were not designed. The Garand was not designed with optics in mind. You know, yeah, you're, you're, it was kind of left with a compromise. Yeah. Optics were really an, an afterthought with with the the M14 platform and, and even the even the foul, you know, where you've got a a sliding top cover, it really doesn't lend itself to stable weapons mounting. If someone really likes HKs and the fact that you can still find, you know, $5 alloy magazines out there, <clears throat> more power to you. But make sure you get a modern HK uh, clone that has a Picatinny uh, receiver where you, you have a, a stable mounting platform. Right. Yeah, the, the ones that uh, PTR is building is uh, the, with the, yeah, the that, welded Picatinny mount. Yeah, the PTR 91 GI, I think, is, is the one to look for. <clears throat> the, um, the GI variants have the deeper chamber flute, so they, they have uh, more reliable function. And most of the PTRs that are made now come with a paddle magazine release and a Picatinny rail uh, on top. So I think that if, if you're going to go with an HK style platform, go with that. And you could literally sell an HK91, an original 
pre-ban HK91 for around $3,500 right now. You can yep. buy a, you can buy a pile of PTR91s with the money you generate from selling just one rifle. So don't be a snob, but get practical. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the accuracy potential with the least amount of fuss out of the AR-10, you know, you, you can buy an inexpensive AR-10. I know Palmetto State's selling one for, for something like $7.99 right now. Yeah. And, and, and accuracy potential. Yeah, they're fantastic accuracy. They're a nice, reliable rifle. Um, you have a little bit of parts interchangeability with AR-15s. And um, and now, these days, most of the AR-10s made by people like like um, Palmetto State Armory or uh, DPMS and so many others, uh, a lot of the parts interchange. You still have a little bit of differences with upper receivers and the and the clearance for the bolt release but otherwise most of the parts interchange yeah yeah and and that's been huge that's been huge because armor light you know even five years ago you had the armor light pattern you had the dpms pattern you had lmt that was kind of doing some unique things they were like a middle ground mm-hmm. um and between the the british army adopting the lmt a version of the AR-10 as their designated marksman's rifle and uh, us adopting the SR-25 or the M110 as it's uh, better known in military circles that really revolutionized it. And I did, it, you know, it, it's not going anywhere. I don't see it. I don't see that changing anytime soon with Magpul making the mags. And, and there's a lot of other uh, magazine options that, that are more common and standardized on the market. I think it's a great option. And of course, 308, 762 by 51, you can't argue with the results. I, I don't think anybody uh, out there in their right mind would argue with with the stopping power and capability as a general purpose weapon, not just for combat, but for really any type of role. Sure, yeah, it's a it's a fine hunting cartridge as well. So I I I don't have any reluctance at all uh, using 7.62 by 51 NATO. It's it's a fine cartridge. Yeah, the 6.5 is great, but is it going to be around in 20 years? I don't know. Right. But I know 308 will be. Right, right. It has it has longevity and and uh, 762 is not going anywhere. Uh, you know, 65 Creedmoor in long range marksmanship. You know, I have a lot of people that ask me about that, and I've had uh, guys that have brought 65 Creedmoor guns to the scout course where we're doing uh, long range marksmanship or intermediate distance long, uh, marksmanship getting out to 500 meters and, and sometimes further if, if uh, the ranges can support it. And, you know, those guns are great and they make the train up time for uh, long range shooters a lot, a, a lot faster. Uh, but at the same time, 308 is so ubiquitous. It's not going anywhere. You know, it, it, it's a NATO standard round, the mag 58, or the 240, as we know of it here in the United States, that weapon system is not going anywhere. Um, right. You know, yeah, that, as a general purpose means, cartridge. With with so many belt feds out there, like the M240 Bravo, um, in terms of availability of ammunition in a post-collapse world, you can always break up 
uh, M240 belts. Yep. So that the ammo is out there in quantity, which you won't be able to say for 6.5 Creedmoor, uh, probably for many, many years. Right. Right. And and Creedmoor, 6.5 Creedmoor, it was not designed for anything other than marksmanship purposes. You know, right. it, it wasn't designed to be a hunting caliber, even though it, it can be. Uh, there are people around here that that are using it for that, but it was not really designed for that. Uh, it's yeah. designed specifically, it, to my knowledge, and uh, the circles that I run in, uh, that that it was designed specifically for thousand meter competition, Camp Perry F class type shoots. Um, yeah. You know, and and they've a lot of the people in in that community have already moved on from Creedmoor. They they've moved to six millimeter Creedmoor, and you, you've got a lot of other uh, wildcats that are coming out. So again, it, to your point, twenty and, and, years from now, is six five Creedmoor going to be around? We don't know. Yeah, and all those high velocity, uh, long range cartridges tend to eat barrels. You know, yep. you you can get. 20,000 rounds out of a 7.62 NATO barrel very easily. But uh, a lot of these really hot cartridges are, are going to burn out barrels within 2,000, 3,000 rounds. So how do you look at that for long-term sustainability? I think of right. preparing, in preparing for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. And I have no doubt that the rifles that are, are sitting in my vaults are going to serve my grandkids and great-grandchildren very well they'll still be very reliable weapons but i won't be able to say the same thing about a 300 win mag right no you're exactly right you're exactly right and um you know they, they, we can look at surplus firearms out there uh that are that are still perfectly serviceable even now and, you know, the stuff that, that's Curio and Relic and, and uh, you know, 1903s and Mosin Nagants and, and all of these as, as a prime example of that. So, you know, me personally, I love hearing the how people come to preparedness, how they come to realizing you know that they need to take the bull by the horns and be more sustainable in their own lives and, and really what their wake-up call is mr rawls you have been so influential over the years in, in in waking up so many people what was your personal wake-up call to survivalism to preparedness well i'd say it probably came uh at about the age of 15 years old i Grew up in an unusual place. I grew up in Livermore, California, which is in the East Bay area, uh, east of San Francisco. And it's the home of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories, where they design nuclear weapons. So most of the kids that I grew up with were the children of nuclear physicists. And these are guys who design nuclear weapons. So they ended up talking about the effects of nuclear weapons around their kids a lot. And the, that realization of just what a fragile world we live in and what the effects of nuclear weapons would could and would be uh, really drove me to be prepared. I also grew up in a fairly high uh, population density area. 
although I grew up in the suburbs, I was right near Oakland and San Francisco and San Jose. And I realized that if things came unglued, all the people from those big cities were going to be heading inland in California right through the town I lived in. So I had a bug out plan formulated when I was only 15 years old. And it was pretty naive. You know, it was me and a backpack and a high standard 22 pistol. <laughs> oh, yeah. At least it was a plan. <laughs> right. Right. So I, you know, I grew up in that in the bomb shelter era. In fact, Livermore has the highest density of privately owned uh, nuclear fallout shelters of any city in the United States. Wow. The, the reason I mean, that makes there were so many physicists from the lab who had their own preps. Yep. So um, it was an interesting place, interesting time to grow up as well. And uh, from there, of course, went off to college, went through ROTC, uh, determined fairly early on that I wanted to be an intelligence officer. I was an SMP cadet with a reserve um, military intelligence company. It was uh, in the days of the old Army Security Agency, the ASA. Oh, yeah. And getting exposed to intelligence circles at a fairly young age. You know, here I was, a 20-year-old kid, uh, and I got read on for SCI, for compartmented information. And getting a glimpse of that at that age, I think really helped crystallize and mature my view of preparedness. I got to read a lot of country studies. I got involved in drafting country studies. Um, and uh, seeing all of that really drove home for me just how fragile a world we live in. And the fragility of those countries I was seeing in those countryside studies actually translated over to the United States pretty well. And I realized that our own nation is quite vulnerable. Uh, in our case, our vulnerability is based upon our reliance upon the power grids and everything yes. attached to those power grids. We have three grids in, this, in the United States, an eastern grid, a western grid, and a Texas grid because Texas always has to be a little different. And uh, <laughs> seeing <laughs> seeing uh, the vulnerability of our country that is, that is inherent in our system, where everything is tied to the grid, most importantly, electrically pumped irrigation, yep. it, it led me to realize that I, I wanted to live somewhere other than California, and uh, by the time I was about 20 years old, I was formulating plans for relocating. I ended up in Idaho, and uh, I never really looked back. I, I, I realized that I wanted to live in a remote area. I structured my career that way so that I could telecommute. I was an early telecommuter back in the days of uh, 2,400 and 4,800 baud modems, and I, my original oh, telecomputer yeah. was a Macintosh Plus that was made in 18, uh, 1985 or 1986. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, it was yeah. a stoning, really, for telecommuting, um, but 
when I got out of college, I went to go work for Defense Electronics Magazine, and then I eventually worked out a deal with them where I could work from home, and I pulled the plug. I, uh, I went ahead and uh, relocated. My first ranch was 40 acres uh, outside of Orofino, Idaho, and I bought a half-finished earth-bermed house on 40 acres for $29,000, and I built up from there. Now, I had to leave behind a lot of things, a lot of family, a lot of friends. In fact, my original prepping group, I basically had to say goodbye to them uh, because they were all scattered off to the four winds. And uh, I, I really, at that point, had, had formulated my own set of scenarios. And I put one of my key ones, which was an economic collapse scenario, into the first draft of my novel, Patriots. I originally wrote that as an online shareware novel called The Gray 90s. And that was released in 1992. And it became the very first popular shareware novel. I had over 30,000 people download it. And this was in the very early days of the public Internet. Yeah. And uh, it got noticed by a publisher in a Christian publisher in Louisiana. And they uh, wanted to put it into print and paperback. And they retitled it Patriots, which I agreed to. And the rest is history. It ended up being a five novel series. And then I ended up doing a whole series of nonfiction books as well. In fact, I'm writing another one right now. Uh, but and then if, um, circa 2005, um, my first wife, my late wife, uh, mentioned a book that she was reading called Blog. I never even heard of blogs, but she said, if, if you're not blogging, you're really missing out because this is going to be the next big thing. You could use it to promote your novels and your consulting business. And I said, oh, I'll take a look at that. And sure enough, uh, as of August of 2005, I started Survival Blog, and it turned out to be the the most popular blog on preparedness in the history of the Internet. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And it it really, uh, over the years, it has popularized and, and really brought to the forefront this whole uh genre of survivalism you you modernized it because the survivalist movement's been around for a long time uh, oh sure going all the way yeah, back I, to I, yeah, I, I i cringe when someone calls me the father of survivalism because i'm really not i'm the grandson of survivalism <laughs> but uh <laughs> in the in the modern it's been around sense. for a long time but it has matured over the years you know um it, it's had a lot of people like Jeff Cooper and Kurt Saxon and Mel Tappan, uh, who really formulated a lot of this stuff originally, people like Crescent Kearney. But um, it's really matured over the years. And there's new generations that come into it over and over again here. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased to see that survivalism has stayed by and large very level headed. And uh, even with the more modern prepping movement, uh, it's it's really the mass media that's made it try to look radical when it really isn't. It's it's very down to earth, very common sense. And when you come right down to it, it's really saved a lot of people a lot of money because 
stocking up on storage food, you're really eating cheap. You're eat you're you're you know, if you buy a sack of a one pound sack of rice, you're literally paying 12 times as much per pound as buying it in bulk. Right. That's expensive food. But if, if you buy in bulk, uh, you could eat very inexpensively and you could also eat a more healthy diet by eating uh, bulk foods as well. Right. Yeah, it's it's Not uh, like prepackaged stuff that's all pumped full of preservatives and and Lord knows what. Right. Well, I mean, we're finding out now, you know, that, that there's so many hazards in the foods that we eat, in the things that have been, quote unquote, accepted science. Uh, you know, the, the science is settled. So it's said on all this stuff. And now we're finding out the, the high levels of toxicity, the um, the the profiteering that's been done at the corporate level. And, and it, it is so blatant in this era of forced vaccinations and repression of people's rights. And uh, we're seeing it all now, you know, and, and there's so many cracks in the dam. It's really waking up the masses and they're all coming out of the woodwork now. Everybody that, that you know, 10 years ago, some of this stuff might've been fringe ideas or, you know, they, they just kind of turned a blind eye to, to the problems of the world. Now they're they're seeing it. You can't not see what's on the horizon. Yeah, I I really felt like kind of the the voice of the wilderness 15 years ago when I was warning people about uh, high levels of sugar and in their foods, about uh, bovine growth hormone, uh, about all these strange additives in foods. Uh, I really feel vindicated now, uh, encouraging people to eat a basic wholesome healthy diet with the nutrients they really need right right and and uh you know it's something that that uh, i've talked about with mike adams and you know that's that's been his very consistent message over the years as well um of of really getting your dietary needs met first as, as a, a foundation to preparedness and and working on that and then you can do all the other stuff. Then you can do all the cool guy stuff. Then then you can do all that. But you got to get yourself right first. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, talking about patriots, because you, 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 you shed some light on the history of patriots. That has been the novel that I think woke up more people in the modern era than anything else than than any other reference and what a book uh what a book so kind of your mindset from that and and what do you think when when people read that and they go back and and i've read it several times if i've read it once i've read it 50 times got one copy of it where i have a, a lot of stuff annotated in the margins what would be your i would say top three lessons from that novel that, that people really need to take to heart? Well, I guess the first is um, it takes friends and faith to survive. You really need people that you can count on. Anyone who's ever been out in the field and worked continuous operations knows that at, you know, you hit the, at about 72 hours, you, you hit the wall. You cannot just be go, 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 go all the time. You need downtime 
Uh, but if you're going to have a secure perimeter, it really takes a team. It takes friends. You, if you really are going to have 24-hour a day, 360-degree security, just one family cannot handle it. They will burn themselves out. Or even if you had a large family, they might be able to handle security. But then who's going to be gardening to produce all the food? You can't do both. Right. So you're either, as I mentioned in Patriots, you're either going to have great security and starve to death, or you're going to eat well and let your guard down. So to right. to do to accomplish both, you really need to have a group of people, and whether it's contiguous neighbors, uh, whether it's a formal retreat group, whether it's a really large extended family with a few friends, whatever you choose. You've got to make it work. You've got to have the teamwork. You've got to have the logistics. You've got to have good, productive soil. And you've got to have fencing to keep livestock in and uh, to keep um, those who would eat your garden, whether they're two-legged or four-legged, out. So it, it takes some planning. Uh, that I guess that's one of the main messages of Patriots. One of the others is that looters come in two different forms. They they could either be a roving gang from the city or they could be looters that wear badges. And some right. in some ways, the looters who wear badges are the more scary ones because you can't call the cops to protect you from looters when it's the cops who are the looters. Right. Um, that's one of the other key messages of Patriots. And then beyond that, I, I think the other message of Patriots is don't look at the world with normalcy bias. Don't expect tomorrow to be just like today where you wake up in the morning, you turn the tap and hot water magically pours forth. You flip the switch and lights magically come on. Don't expect that to happen. Have contingency plans, have backup systems, be self-sufficient, whether that's photovoltaics, whether it's food storage, water filtration, uh, communications with your neighbors that doesn't involve picking up a cell phone or a landline. You've got to have contingency plans. Always have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Right. That's the other main message of patriots and it is gratifying to see that so many people have read it and they've taken it to heart yeah absolutely absolutely and and i know uh because you you even say in in the preface of of one of the versions of it uh because i've got a couple of the editions of it that you know you you wrote it to be a a survival manual that is easy to read easy to digest because we we typically do better with fiction because we can say with fiction um maybe not necessarily what we can say uh in in a literal sense in a field manual type sense yeah so i I know personally i wanted to make the patriots novel series a survival manual dressed as fiction in part because a lot of people will just not sit down and read a non-fiction book especially these days they don't have the attention span for it (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, but people will still uh, sit down and read a novel, 
And I tried to squeeze as much practical, tactical stuff into a fiction format as I could. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, over the years, people have asked and it, it's been kind of a, a perennial question about mutual assistance groups and, you know, uh, preparedness groups and, you know, dare I even say militias out there. And, and the, the constant question that people have is how do you get people? And really, even after they've resolved that issue, how do you keep the people engaged? And I think your novels really address that well. Now, uh, what are your thoughts on that? What would be your answer to the people who are asking that question? Well, in terms of getting a group together, uh, I, I think the important thing is to focus on family first. You know, as a Christian, I look at Christian charity as very important. And charity truly does begin at home. If you go back all the way to the Old Testament, they had the law of what's called Sedaka. And that's basically concentric rings that starts with you, your immediate nuclear family, then your extended family, then your neighbors, your community, and then out, outward from there. You focus your charity close to home at first. And then if you're really wealthy, maybe you might be able to help um, support a whole community. But charity begins at home. Your retreat group should begin at home. And in terms of just practical security, it makes the most sense to to build a retreat group or even, you know, even someone who wants to do a, a leaderless resistance cellular organization. You start with people, you know, and you right. and anyone you don't know personally, you didn't grow up with that were family or immediate family or close friends. You have to vet them very carefully because, let's face it, today, um, just look at what's going on uh, with so many recent events uh, like right. the, the Whitmer organi- uh, fiasco, for example. Most yep. of the people who were involved were FBI informants and, yep. and paid FBI agents, and they were the ones who were pushing the agenda. Everybody else yep. was was dragging their feet and didn't want to even be involved. And now all now all those people are under indictment and uh, facing trial. And the people who organized the whole thing uh, were the, the federal agents. So be yep. very careful about who you associate with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the ringleader of that that organization who, who was an FBI special agent. The great irony about that is, is that he had multiple social media accounts using his real name, and it was a variation of the same name that he gave to the guys who he was entrapping. And he was making a lot of posts. He was very vocal about his dislike for then-President Donald Trump. Had any of these guys actually done any amount of vetting on him, they would have found him. They would have found this stuff that he was writing and they, they would have known, you know, something's up, but they didn't even do that. Yeah, that's pretty pitiful. But it, it, it goes back to when people are telling you what you want to hear, you, you, you know, and, and people are desperate enough, they're going to end up falling for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's human nature, unfortunately. And, 
you know, people tend to be very naive. They tend to be followers. All I can say is develop critical thinking skills. And when you're evaluating any situation, whether it's political, whether it's a retreat group, whether it's your local city council or board of, county board of supervisors, when you're evaluating things, step back, take a 30,000 foot view and say, well, what's really going on here? What are people's motivations? Ignore what people say. Pay a little bit of, of attention to what people do. Pay a lot of attention to the results of what they do. In the final analysis, Absolutely. that's all that really matters. Words are meaningless. Actions right. count. Right. Right. Ed, that's absolutely 100 percent. 100 percent. So, um, you know, we talked about Patriots and, and the Patriots series and what a huge impact that had and, and continues to have as more and more people buy those series. And I strongly recommend it uh, to, to all the listeners of the strongly, strongly strongly recommend it. It's a great foundational text. But you wrote another fiction book that I picked up as soon as it came out. I really enjoyed it. It was a kind of a change in gears from um, the strictly survivalist fiction and, uh, you know, Land of Promise. Mm -hmm. And I really, really enjoyed that. That novel where you you made the case for creating a Christian nation uh, a nation that was uh, carved out of land that was, you know, seemingly worthless to its its uh, neighboring nations and how you, you laid out this entire case about how a Christian libertarian nation could be created and how the the, the it functioned as a society, the threats that it faced. Uh, and and really the the role of geopolitics, I thought that it was incredibly well done. And uh, so, kind of talk to me a little bit about where you came from with that novel, what your you know your thought process behind it, and uh, just really how how that works into the big scheme of things. Well, uh, Land of Promise was more or less a Gedenken experiment, a thought experiment, where. I extrapolated based on the history of Israel, which was a Jewish homeland nation, and saw the need, especially with what was going on eight years ago with ISIS and the just horrible uh, depredations they were making against Christians in, in every nation they touched, and the need for a Christian homeland nation, basically a, a nation of sanctuary for people who were going to be run out of other nations sim simply because they were Christians. And I, I wanted to make it clear, it wasn't just Muslims that were running them out of the countries. It was also uh, liberal, feel-good people in, in countries in, in Europe, for example, that were making it um, difficult to preach the gospel of Christ and not run afoul of political correctness. So that's what that novel was all about. Um, I also, again, tried to squeeze a lot of practical stuff into it, but it was it was more of a piece to get people thinking. And in the modern context, if you if you look at the present day in the United States, there's a lot of talk right now, not just about 
of the possibility of Civil War II, but of the importance of parallel economy groups. The parallel yes. economy that's springing up right now, I think, is really a overlooked trend. I think it, if we look back on this 20 years from now, we'll see that it's a very important trend because we're getting closed out, just like the, the, the fictional characters in Land of Promise. We right now, conservatives, Christians, and uh, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, are getting closed out of society. Yes. Because of our choices about homeschooling, home birth, whether or not we take a, a experimental jab. There's all kinds of choices that people are making. And those choices are leading the mainstream of society to marginalize us. And the logical right. response is to set up a parallel economy. And I think if you if you go back and if any of your your listeners haven't read Land of Promise, read it with the whole concept of a parallel economy in mind as you read that novel. And I think you'll see some good uh, lessons to be learned there. As the parallel economy develops, we're going to end up with parallel social media platforms, uh, parallel banking, parallel uh, cash payment systems. We're going to end up with uh, a parallel agricultural supply chain. And a lot of that is going to be at a very local level. You're going to be buying bulk foods from local farmers, for example. You'll be buying beef from local cattlemen or, tr or better yet, trading goods and services for some of that beef. Be swapping uh, mutton for beef. You'll be swapping eggs for uh, piano lessons. It's all right. there for the taking. Uh, think about it long and hard and figure out who you can trust. And don't get government involved whatsoever. They don't really have a role in all of this. Develop a true parallel economy and keep it as local as possible. Amen. It, that's and and you know that is exactly how. Back when I, I first read that novel, I've read it several times since. That's exactly how I read it. Um, and and that's I even wrote in the show notes here the juxtaposition that you constantly drove home to um, to the United States, and even when your your central characters, the protagonists, travel back to the United States. It, the culture shock that they experienced of all, all of the the uh, toxicity of the entertainment industry, the degradation of culture. And now we see that it, it was even even just a few years ago, it was in our face, but it wasn't as blatant as it is today. We see yep. it with the vulgarity of uh, politicians on the left. You know, we, we had. Um, uh, the congresswoman from uh, Minneapolis, who was on uh, one of the 24-hour news networks, using incredibly foul language, and that is that is beneath the office of which she sits mm -hmm. and of which she holds. But we see this 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 uh, over-the-top vulgarity, this over-the-top 
um, really in in your face the the uh, the degradation of culture and the de- the depreciation of value, if yeah. you will. Well, when I when I drafted that novel eight years ago, um, one of the original reviewers said he thought one of the chapters was just over the top, and that was the one where I had uh, the LGBT acronym expanded out to about 20 characters and he said oh that's that's never going to happen there's just no way that's ever going to well now we're up to lgbtq plus and i i think that within a few years they'll probably have kids chanting some acronym that's 10 or 12 characters long it's just we're on the slippery slope and we people recognize that and that's why it's important to strategically relocate, move to a lightly populated area that is close to the land, make good friends of like faith, and it's time to stock up, team up, and train up. Amen. Amen. And that's something that you've been exactly right and incredibly consistent all of these years. So uh, with just a few minutes left on on the interview, you know, the last question that I typically will get, and it's one that that a lot of people ask, whether it's in class or in emails, is where I see all of this stuff going, where I see it heading. And I know you probably get that question, too. What I don't necessarily want to call it predictions because none of us really have a crystal ball. But you, as a uh, military intelligence professional and your background in in understanding geopolitics and really seeing the long game, where do you see all of this going? Well, unfortunately, I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. The the general degradation of the moral degradation and social degradation of the United States, I think is going to continue. The the powers that be are going to increasingly enforce their will on us. And whether that we're talking about tech moguls or talking about uh, CBS, NBC, ABC, or whether we're talking uh, politicians, they're going to be forcing their worldview on our kids. And People need to recognize that that's going to it's going to persist. It's going to increase and that at some point the divide in this nation between what are now called red states and blue states is going to become profound. And that's going to to lead to the partition of a lot of states, most notably uh, upstate New York, northern Colorado, eastern Oregon, eastern Washington. There's a lot of states that are going to break up. Uh, you know, in uh, years and years ago, when West Virginia split off from Virginia, it set a precedent. And right. it's a legal precedent. It's constitutional. And given the divide between red states and blue states, or even just red counties and blue counties, it's inevitable that a lot of states are going to partition because the people living in the rural parts of those states now have absolutely nothing in common with the urban cores of those states. So if you look at a state like Oregon, where all the politics 
and all the wealth and all the power, the political power, is all clustered in five or six counties in northwestern Oregon, and the rest of the state wants nothing to do with them. It's just a matter of time before the rest of the state says, we quit. We want to become our own state. It's right. the exact same thing is happening in Washington. On, on in, in both cases, that's west of the Cascade Mountain Range versus east of the Cascades. Uh, same thing's happening in northern Colorado. Same thing's happening in upstate New York. Uh, in many, many states, we're going to see partitions take place within the next 5, 10, 20 years. It's bound to happen. Right. And we're not the ones forcing it. It's the ones, it's the ultra leftist socialist Democrats who are forcing all of this with their radical agenda. They are basically uh, disenfranchising whole swaths of their states. And when those counties, the rural counties, eventually push back, it should come as no surprise to the urban elites, the coastal elites. No, I, I completely agree with that. I uh, completely agree with that assessment. And it's also worth noting that the the glue that is keeping all of this from happening in in the big scale is the U.S. economy, the, the money, the federal subsidies that trickle down right. to the state level, that trickle down thus to the local level. That's really right. the glue it's that's the keeping old, it all together. It's the old carrot and stick. And, and as you mentioned, uh, tax dollars have a lot to do with it. They tax yep. the entire country and then they dole part of it back out and making themselves look very magnanimous. But the federal highway funds, for example, have been used as both a carrot and a stick for many, many years. That's what drove the uh, 21-year-old drinking age. That's what drove seatbelt laws. Uh, that's what drove the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was federal highway funds. And the states, almost with no exception, all went along with it because they didn't want to lose out on federal highway funds. And right. that same scenario gets played out over and over and over again at both the state and the federal level on a whole myriad of issues. And again, the eventual partition of states is going to be the final determiner that's going to rectify all of that. Right. Right. And I, your assessment, 100% spot on. You know, I, I concur uh, completely. And, you know, it, it's like any divorce, you know, it, it's it's not going to be fun. But in the long term, you know, it, it's going to pay off. And, and we've got to starve it out. You know, that's as we saw with the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, you have to starve out the communists. You have to just get rid of those bad sectors of society. And, and unfortunately, I don't think that it's going to come peacefully. I think that, that the U.S.'s balkanization is going to look like uh, a lot like when Croatia initially split off from the former Yugoslavia. It's going to look like that. Uh, um, so people really need to be taking their preparedness very, very seriously. Yeah, just like the former Yugoslavia where you had – um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, that whole split. We could see that here in the States. I really hope and pray 
that we don't see a lot of uh, violence come out of this. I really hope that a partition um, of states will at least forestall that. Because, you know, if, if you look at the history of the 20th century, civil wars are really messy. And yep. the best parallel you could look at probably would be the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, where you had uh, people that basically had nothing left in common and all they had left to do at that point was fight. Yep. I hope we don't get to that point in this country, but let's face it, uh, it's looking more and more like there's going to be some blood in the streets and I'm, I'm really dreading it. Yeah. You and I both, you and I both. It's important to note too, that, that we're not the only ones you and I, the conservatives, libertarians, we're not the only ones that are looking at the Spanish Civil War as a parallel or a historical rhyme with what we see, the scenario that may be playing out today. The left absolutely looks at it as well. If if you know, we examine, and this is something that I've done uh, quite a bit over the years, if we examine the uh, the people who have come back to the U.S. from the Kurdish region of northern Syria that was recently in conflict with ISIS, they they looked at the, the modern incarnation of Antifa that we see here in the United States is very active today that we all know about five years ago was very active in northern Syria, even setting up their own schools for guerrilla warfare, developing a cadre that they have uh, exported abroad. They looked at the Spanish Civil War and that example as their God. And yeah. they even all the way down to the names of their organizations that they picked out. That was their model. Yeah. And the other thing that we have to look back on with a little bit of trepidation with the Spanish Civil War is what did you you ended up with? Um communists fighting fascists and people had to choose one of those two sides both of which were not desirable <laughs> exactly so, beware folks um the powers that be might foment a civil war and then push people in those those kind of directions that they don't even want to go to uh, right. so beware keep keep an eye on the big picture and pray hard Amen, brother. Amen. Any, well, this has been an incredible interview. Absolutely incredible interview. I, uh, blown away, blown away by the fact that, 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 uh, you, you wanted to come on and, and, uh, just sitting here and, and, and learning, you know, while I'm doing this, it's, it's been huge. Any last words for the listeners of Radio Contra? Well, I just want to encourage your listeners to first get right with God. And if you feel convicted to make a move, to not hesitate to do so. Because right now we have with high real estate prices, we have a window of opportunity that I think is going to close within a couple of years. Because right now, a lot of your listeners are sitting in suburbs or urban areas in houses that are probably worth four to 10 times as much as they originally paid for them or that their parents paid for them. That window of opportunity may close. 
as uh, the economy starts to crumble. So take this opportunity to vote with your feet. If you feel convicted to move, go ahead and move and move while it's still affordable and while the logistics are still there to make it happen. Get out of the big cities and um, when you get to wherever you're moving, don't try to remake the big city where you move. Don't try to say, well, this is the way we did it in Ohio or whatever. Uh, Find out how the locals live and uh, adopt their way of living rather than trying to impose your uh, way of living coming out of of the socialist blue state. Make the move. Amen. Make the move. Amen. I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. James Wesley Rawls, survivalblog.com. Brother, it has been an absolute honor to have you here, and I uh, hope to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much for having me on, and I pray the 91st Psalm for you and all your listeners. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And likewise. So everybody out there, God bless all of you. This is NC Scout out.